Welcome again to Mince Levins from the Edge. This is Jeremy Glazer, co-chair of the Emerging Companies and Venture Capital Practice here at Mince Levin. From the Edge is a podcast geared toward helping entrepreneurs thrive by learning from the experiences of executives in the technology, biotech, and finance fields. On this podcast, Mince Levin partners who work with growing companies, raising capital, building great management teams, and achieving successful liquidity events will discuss with investors and entrepreneurs the key reasons that they were able to build successful companies and important lessons learned along the way. Mince Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at mincedge.com. Well, I could not be more excited uh, with our guest today. We have uh, Dave Taylor, who's been a serial entrepreneur in the technology space for over 30 years, first in Silicon Valley in the 1980s and 90s, and then in San Diego after he moved to the area in 1999. And that's when we first met. That's actually a fun story in and of itself. Yeah. (laughs) David has been a founder, key employee, or CEO at six high-tech firms, four of which made their way into the public markets through acquisition or IPO. His last startup company, Cineform, which was acquired by GoPro in 2011, is the subject of this discussion. I'd also like to mention that Dave is at it again, having started a winery in 2014 with two other founders in Paso Robles on the California Central Coast. Well, Dave, just so so glad to have you here. Um, I just always have felt that you have some amazing stories to share with entrepreneurs, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here to share. Thank you for thinking that the stories are interesting, and uh, you know, if they can be beneficial, I'm glad to tell them. Wonderful. Well, why don't we start by uh, maybe tell us a little bit about you know why you started Cineform. Jeremy, my background is uh, has been mostly digital video related, and uh, I was involved in the early standardization process for MPEG, which happened in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, we did all the original compression work at the company I was with in Silicon Valley. We, we did the compression work for DirecTV when that launched in the summer of 1994, and uh, Ever since, it was kind of one thing or another related to the evolution of digital video. With Cineform, which we started in 2001, we were extending digital video into the post-production area, editing, effects, and so forth. And to do that, we needed some new technology for that. You use different kinds of compression technology for a post-production environment where video quality is required to be the highest than you do in, say, a distribution area like cable television or direct TV or so forth. So we were cutting new ground there. So why did we start Cineform? Well, I guess it is probably true that entrepreneurs start new companies because they're passionate about a technology or a marketplace. They're passionate about the size of that and the change that they can contribute to the evolution of whatever this widget or technology is. And we were certainly those guys. And by the way, we're also hopeful that if things go well, we might make a dollar or two at the end of it. And uh, so that, of course, drives people as well. So our focus was digital video and in this new area. We had a group of people that knew a lot about this. We'd been doing it for a long time. And so, uh, yeah, we started the company in 2001. 
So um, I think it's fascinating that you started in 2001. For mm-hmm. those uh, listeners who are old enough to remember, that was right after the dot-com bust. Pretty difficult time to start a company. I vividly remember coming to visit you in your offices, and they couldn't have been more different than the company offices I had been in for all these dot-com companies that had raised millions of dollars and had fancy furniture and air on chairs. Maybe just talk a little bit about that for a second, about that first office. I think that's fun for people to hear uh, what it was like to start in that in that time period. Uh, it was difficult. In fact, we'll, maybe we'll talk about financing in a minute as well because the difficulties of that time uh, fell forward and became a bit of a problem for us as well. But you know, our style was always one of focusing on the technology and maybe minimalism as opposed to <laughs> having an opulent surrounding. And our office were file cabinets with solid core doors. And we purchased those solid core doors at Home Depot and we had a painting party one day. And uh, son of a gun, I think I was still using that office <laughs> or Many of us were as we uh, sold the company 10 years later. I and, if, know, and, if I, and if I remember, I think the couch had come, in, had come from your basement or something like that. Yeah. It was there in the, uh, in it, the, in the lobby. It, it did. And I think <laughs> when we finally changed the location, we had no room for it. We finally threw it away. But uh, that's right. That, that's how we ran things. And you know what? We ran things that way in part because it was our money we were spending. We had difficulty in financing, which we'll talk about a little bit. And you make decisions a little differently when you're spending your money versus somebody else's money. Absolutely. And I think that's a great lead into the way you funded the company. Because I think the thing that I've always been so fascinated by with your story is so many people talking talk about you know bootstrapping a company. And... and um, I think you really experienced it in sort of the most interesting way of bootstrapping with multiple opportunities to fund the company over a number of years. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you financed the company, all the different people that you interacted with along the way. I think when an entrepreneur starts a company, often you think of venture financing. Uh, Maybe these days you'll often think of angel financing first. Um, But those are not always options for everybody. And when we started in 2001, we actually did have a million dollars in venture financing that we closed relatively quickly because myself and another founder knew uh, one of these VCs very well. It was a company called 2M Invest, which most probably had not heard of, but they were doing a lot of media investment back in those days, and they were headquartered in Denmark. So they put in a million dollars of Uh, convertible debt financing and as an outcome of what you mentioned a moment ago the bust in the marketplace 2M Invest actually went bankrupt six months after they provided the financing so the venture capital fund that invested in your company went bankrupt yeah you see back in those heady days at the end of internet 1.0 there were a couple of VC firms that actually went public the most recognizable name of those was a firm known as CMGI, which was a Bay Area firm. The firm that invested in us also had gone public. And when you go public, you are no longer that partnership that usually uh, is the structure uh, formation for these VC firms. So yes, once they were public and once they ran into financial problems, then like a lot of companies, if you can't pay your bills, you're forced into bankruptcy. And they were in our case as well. And so then um, we, you know, often as part of 
convertible debt financings, the debt will convert into equity when you raise additional funds. But they went into bankruptcy so quickly, we hadn't raised any additional <laughs> funds. Right. And so uh, they're, they're now out of the way, and a trustee is holding this convertible debt. Yes. Except they forgot one key piece. Yes. They never attached the assets of the company. Right, unsecured, <clears throat> sure. So at its conversion, it became an unsecured debt held by a law firm in Denmark. Yes. Now, it was still an obligation that we had, but because it was unsecured, we could do other financings which came in on top of that, and there was no uh, requirement that new financing uh, was secondary to this old debt. And so that, I would say, opened the door for us. It provided financing, but then it opened the door through the outcome of this VC firm to pursue some other paths. Okay, so let's talk about who, you know, talk about maybe, so what did you do next, right? So here you are, you were counting on this VC to, as is typical, they do a convertible note, you're going to go raise another round of equity more typically, that note would then convert, and you would normally expect that that venture capitalist would then participate in that next round. But now here you are, your VC has gone bankrupt, it's, it's a convertible debt instrument, what did you do next? Well, also remember, this is now post-2000, so it's not a good time to raise money. The uh, VC firm that invested in us was a firm that liked to do digital media deals, and uh, so, so it was easy to raise money with them. We couldn't find another. Yes. And uh, so we used a combination of things. One was uh, founder financing, <laughs> and uh, over the course of time, the three primary founders went without salaries for a total of a couple of years during this process. Um, very, very unique. Um, most most firms aren't able to make it through uh, financing difficulties like that. For whatever reason, we were able to make it happen. And uh, that's really one of the keys to our success. But we still needed money, so what did we do? We quickly realized that there were larger companies in the marketplace, big names that everybody knows today, that also had a stake in this evolution towards digital video. And we ended up doing strategic financing with many firms, um, some of which were, some of the money we received was grant money, some of it was uh, licensing fees for technology we were developing. Some of them were loans and some of them were equity based. We did everything. We, I didn't, love it. we didn't care. And we dealt with, um, we, we did those deals to name, to name names actually. Our biggest investor was Microsoft, but we also did deals with Intel, who was very nice to us. They, they granted money to us that we never did have to pay back. Wow. Uh, we did deals with Adobe, with Technicolor, with Sony. And on a daily basis, we were talking to all of the peers of those companies as well. We found ourselves in kind of a unique situation in the marketplace where we had something valuable that others seemed to like. Wonderful. Wow. I love the fact that you sort of hit every single type of financing. You know, I counsel companies all the time about, you know, do it all, right? You want to get revenue, you want to get grants, you want to get equity, you want to get loans, you know, pursue it all. And you're a great example of having, you know, done that and uh, and gotten money from all those different sources. Um, so, you know, you had you had a lot of what I, you know, as we and I, you and I talk about it, we call them the, the near-death experiences of the company. Um, if you don't mind, maybe talk about some of those and sort of what happened and what it felt like 
and and then of course you know how you uh, how you revived the company and brought it back from that near death experience. Yeah. Wow. Um, after our VC went bankrupt and we had really no source of of money, we had there was another company which ultimately didn't play a big role in our outcome. But they were willing to provide a little bit of financing and maybe acquire us. It was all very early days. Our technology wasn't that valuable at the time. It didn't really go very well, so it caused our our founding team to really sit down and talk about this. And you know, our, can can we make this happen without having money in the bank right now? What are our options? And um, ultimately, we decided. You know what? We had this unwavering faith in the technology we were developing and the market's need for that technology and we would just figure it out. And um, that became kind of the mantra for us as we were going to figure it out and just make it happen even without a, a VC or other big uh, financing source. And uh, we felt we felt very, very much at risk during those days. Ultimately, you know, I had a nice house down here in San Diego and, and in stereotypical entrepreneur fashion, I had to sell the house to finance the company. And uh, ultimately, my wife and I had n a number of discussions kind of saying we may never own a house again. And uh, that's the way it goes. Those were the, the decisions that we made in, help, in order to help finance the business. Um, fortunately, it turned out differently at the end. But those were, you know, there's a lot of personal risk involved in, in this also. It's not just entrepreneurial risk for whomever that entrepreneur is. So let's, this is great. I think that's a good transition. So let, let's talk about, you know, the ultimate success, you know, the sale process of the company. And even there, you know, you had one of the most interesting sales processes that I've seen with, you know, for a client of mine in 30 years of doing this. Uh, talk a little bit about the sales process and then ultimately the sale to GoPro. Um, yeah, we, um, we had a lot of partners, as I mentioned. I mentioned a lot of those names and, and those, those companies did a lot of things for us uh, in the marketplace. They gave us a lot of credibility. They also represented companies who might be uh, might be exits for Cineform as well. And in fact, one of those companies, and this company I'm actually not going to mention uh, because this deal didn't work out very well in the end, but it was a company that we had worked with really through the duration of our lifetime, almost 10 years. And uh, they were a big guy in the marketplace. They still are a big guy in the, guy in the marketplace. In, in the 2010 timeframes, so now we've really moved forward here, uh, they decided they wanted to acquire us. Uh, they made an offer, we negotiated some terms, we signed the deal, we had a term sheet in place. And it was at that point that the deal started going south uh, pretty quickly. The team that negotiated the deal with us, which was the engineering group that wanted us as part of their team, was now out of the equation. We were dealing with the corporate uh, business development guys and for us, we were a tr for them, we were a transaction. They didn't really care. And we had, there's always certain items you want to discuss post-term sheet. For instance, some taxation issues. Maybe you can structure things a little bit differently. Their answer was always no, no, no. <laughs> and so um, I think they also realized or thought that we didn't have any other options. 
and in fact, the term sheet locked us up pretty tightly. Generally, you don't have much wiggle room uh, to get out of deals like that. But we had been in process with a custom development for GoPro, who's a much smaller company at this time. Uh, this was in 2010. Right, 2010, right? Still yeah. small, private, hadn't really yeah. achieved the Yeah, they had like 20 employees. And um, they, they realized they needed uh, some software developed for them. And so we did that original software for GoPro. And um, as it became aware, as they became aware that there was going to be a change in our relationship with them, in other words, if we were acquired, we would not be able to finish their development project. Uh, they they made a full court press on us and said you should be part of us. Yes. Uh, but we couldn't have those negotiations uh, because we were locked up. But there was uh, there was a little clause within the deal we had with this other large company that did allow us in some very narrow circumstances to thread a needle and exit that that deal. Yes. And we ultimately did that. And yes. that that was. As soon as that deal was undone, now we're also feeling vulnerable because we couldn't negotiate with this other company. We had to, in good faith, kind of break this deal apart, which we did. But and that was and that was a big deal for you at the time to walk away from that deal because you didn't know that you had another deal. You didn't know that you could get another deal. And and again, I, I think my memory is correct that leading up to that deal, it wasn't like the company was booming and you had the ability to keep the company running on its own independently. Well, we had been profitable um, the last couple of years, although we, we were not rolling in cash, uh, but we had been able to self-finance our, ourselves, which was a, a good thing, and it gave us some confidence. We needed more financing, so we either needed to raise money or we needed to close an acquisition deal. So, so jumping out of that bigger deal um, was was a big deal. We we nerves and if, ner nerves of steel. Yeah, I, I I always look back at that and, and, yeah. and just amazed at the nerves of steel that you and your team had to do that. You know, again, it's one of those things where it was just wait a minute, this is not right for our team and for our shareholders. Uh, we were one of those companies because because of the way we did our financing, we held the shares. We didn't have a VC holding the shares. Remember that the money they invested was debt. So every day we showed up at the office, we had a shareholder meeting. Yes. Not literally, <laughs> but figuratively, because we happened to be the majority shareholders. Yes. So we were in charge of ourselves, which is something that every entrepreneur can benefit from if you've got the, the skills on your team to help set your course. So we did. And so we jumped out of that deal. Uh, it was risky. We had a lot of big partners that had put money in too, and they're kind of going, what are you guys doing? And uh, the only answer I could tell them at the time was, please trust me. And that, that theme of trust me was one that we're very fortunate for because throughout the history of our company, um, our big partners did trust us, and they did in this case. And we negotiated um, a deal with GoPro uh, that was much uh, more friendly to the shareholders and to the employees, and ended up being a good deal. And, you know, at the end of the day, I was told numerous times by numerous people at GoPro about how pleased they were that they did that deal. Um, Cineform became the software arm for GoPro, and that team is today, I don't know, 100 people. And, uh, and, so. and and the sale the sale was very successful. Ultimately, as we all know, mm -hmm. GoPro continued to grow. Uh, ultimately, had an extremely successful IPO and uh, and great returns to the uh, 
to their investors at that time. Um, and I know you've always been very proud of what happened to the employees at Cineform. Tell us, tell us about what happened to the employees at Cineform. Yeah, well, I think partly because we had been able to retain so much equity that I guess one of, <laughs> I, I tell this story occasionally, one of my, my proudest accomplishments, I think, out of Cineform is that every employee made seven figures on that deal. Every single employee made seven figures. Everybody did, yes. And, uh, you know, it's, it's awesome. And to, to look at what that has allowed each of those people to do as they move on. Of course, they're all working. They all, most of them still work at GoPro. They've been there a very long time. In fact, um, our CTO at Cineform, uh, David Newman, is apparently now the longest engineer at GoPro. Good. Very exciting. Very exciting. So once again, this is one of these like overnight success stories, right, Dave? Yeah, it was a 10-year overnight <laughs> success story. Yeah. And um, when you get to the end of it, there's, there's a feeling of relief. There's a feeling of satisfaction. And, um, you know, there were so many other things that happened along our way, along the way with some of our other partners that, you know, they all worked together to help us get to where we ended up. I love it. Well, we're going we're gonna to wrap up here, but I want to I end with... Um, asking you a question. You know, this, this podcast is really devoted to helping entrepreneurs build great businesses. And I think there's so many lessons here, but if you could sort of summarize some important lessons that you would love the listeners to take away from your experience of having built Cineform and through the difficult times and through the very successful exit, what would some of those lessons be? Well, there's one I think that has a couple of corollaries to it. Regarding financing, be flexible. Sometimes strategic financing, I believe, and, and certainly in our case, and it's not, not for everybody necessarily, but in our case was the way to go. Sometimes your strategic partner has a bigger vested interest in your success than even your VC who is simply there to make money on what it is you are doing. And if you can find somebody who cares about you because their business itself benefits from their relationship with you, it's better. So strategic financing is something that people should consider. Now, what I'll comment on about strategic financing is know those who you would consider to be strategic partners. Know your friends, know your peers, your competitors, know the infrastructure chain that exists where, where you do your business and get to know them as people because it's interesting how often you might need to make a phone call to one of those guys, even including a competitor. And if you know your competitor well, you know, there's always an arrangement that can be made. And ultimately, you know, we signed a term sheet with a partner that didn't work out. We ended up jumping out of that, as I mentioned, and we did a deal with another partner. And um, it, felt, it felt very good for us. So know your, know your partners, look at strategic financing as an option. And another important thing that was a takeaway for us, times can get tough in startup companies. It's not all just you know parties. And uh, when we went for two years without salaries, that's a big time impact on your family, your, your wife, your kids, where you live. Uh, the decisions that you make at the time, and you've got to embrace your family. Sometimes it's easy to distance yourself as you're 
mm. as you're under stress and as you are focused. Uh, but if you can embrace your family and bring them as part of it, then everybody buys in and and everybody shares in the difficulties, but also the successes. So your families are very important, something that's, um, I think, often overlooked. And I guess one other one other point here, I've talked about how how so many companies have helped us out and how many good guys there were at the end. But there were there were examples of guys who were not such good guys. <laughs> there are guys that want to take advantage of you yeah. and you need to be able to identify those people. You be, need to be able to neutralize their impact uh, on you as well. And I guess there's just a bigger theme here of know all of the players, whether they're partners of yours or whether they're you know, potential enemies of yours know them and deal with them accordingly, but deal with everybody fairly and in an upfront manner because ultimately that comes back to your benefit. Well, this is just some great, great takeaway lessons and just a a fabulous discussion. And uh, I can't thank you enough, Dave, for coming and sharing these stories uh, with us. We're definitely gonna have you back, but just really quick before we go, tell us quickly about the winery. (laughs) The winery, yeah. So as I look out at the wineries, if you ever ask, a wine owner where he came from he usually comes from being a lawyer um, or a doctor or sometimes a technology guy yes. of which I um, am in the latter and um, I've always enjoyed wine and food I since I've been in San Diego I spent a lot of time on the Central Coast wineries on the Central Coast from Paso Robles down to Santa Barbara are awesome so many different microclimates uh, some world-class wineries, some 100-point wine scores that have shown up down there. And uh, so I decided I wanted to be in that business. Um, met my winemaker in a unique, kind of a unique way, and we stayed in touch. And uh, so he is now my equal partner and winemaker. So the winery is called Cordant? Cordant so people... and Nell Winery. Yes, Cordant and Nell. Uh, we are in Paso Robles. Uh, we do Rhone-style wines, which means Syrah, Grenache, Mouvedre, uh, the wines, the grapes that are grown in the Rhone region in France. And we do Pinot Noir as well. Uh, we buy all of our fruit. We have about 15 different sources for fruit. And we're doing uh, a couple of thousand cases a year. That's wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much. And that'll wrap up today's uh, session on uh, From the Edge. We look forward to having you at our next podcast. Thank you.